So Michael Gazanaga is a neuroscientist and probably my favorite neuroscientist. I know, Ben Carson's a close second, but anyways, probably my favorite. And uh, he is a neuroscientist at UC Santa Barbara, and I kind of geeked out on his stuff a few years ago, and he came out with a new book, and I'm geeking out on it again. So he's kind of the world's leading expert on split-brain patients, which is sounds like a derogatory term, like, you split-brain, but it's not. It's actually a technical term referring to people whose, whose brains, for one reason or another, either injury, sickness, or actual, like, cutting, the, the corpus callosum, the part that connects the two hemispheres, the right and the left hemisphere of the brain, has been damaged and the two sides don't communicate anymore. And if you remember your uh, ninth grade biology class, you'll remember that the two sides, while they do a lot of the same things, there's uh, there's a few parts that just get isolated in one side or the other. So the left side of the brain is the center of speech, conscious thought. Uh, it's where we reason cognitive ability. The right side of the brain appears to be driven by something more elemental, more guttural, not verbal, more emotional desire. So, so you have this, this, this cognitive ability on the one side and you have this desire on the other side. Now, is that an oversimplification? Absolutely it is. But, but it's, it's enough to give you a picture of what he's dealing with here. When you take this brain and you split it in half, that there's these two parts that usually, in the normal human, you've got this corpus callosum, these millions of neurons connecting each other so that you can't really separate your feelings from your, from your reason. You can't really separate cognitive from, from guttural desires. Like it's all, you're all one big ball of wax. But, but in these patients, we have the unique opportunity to separately observe what they think and what they feel, what they say and what they want. So he actually designed a, a, a test, uh, an experiment of sorts, where they would visually, I don't know if you know, your, your eyes are connected to the opposite sides of your brains through the optic nerves that go there. So, so by visually showing them an image that only their left eye could see, they could show an image just that only the right side of the brain could could um, understand, and and vice versa in that. So in that, he would put up the split screen, and he'd put up a message on one side. And for example, on one of them, he put up a, a sign that would show the right side of the brain. Remember, the side of the brain that is nonverbal, the side that is desire, the side that is guttural. He showed the right side of the brain a sign that said wave. And so the person started waving. Now remember, the left side of the brain, the verbal, uh, the, the cognitive verbal part, couldn't see it. So when, when the person was waving, then he would ask them, why are you waving? And what's the right answer? The right answer should be, I have no idea why I'm waving. Why am I waving? I don't know. I wanted to wave somewhere deep inside me. That's what they should have said. But they didn't. To, to a, uh, a person in the experiment, not a single person did that. They said they'd say something like, I, I thought I saw someone I, I knew. Or I was fixing my hair. He put up a sign that, that went to that side and said, said, it was something funny and it said laugh on it. And the person started giggling and he asked them, why, why are you giggling? And they should say, I have no clue. I have no idea why I'm giggling, but they didn't. They'd always say, you know, this whole experiment is just so funny to me. My favorite is he showed, um, there's one older woman and you can see the video of this on YouTube, by the way, um, where she's flashed up a, a nude image of, a, of another woman and she starts blushing. And the doctor's like, why are you blushing? She's like, I don't know. Sometimes I just get embarrassed. So 
what he found, or what he thought he found, was that the mind would rationalize this emotional subconscious, what it had already decided, what it was already affected by, that the mind would create a backstory to explain what, in our terms, the heart already wanted or desired or decided. So he came, he came to the conclusion that it happens that somewhere deep inside of us, most of the decisions, some of the decisions at least, in split-brain patients, he could show that some of the decisions, some of the actions that they would do, had nothing to do with rational cognitive thought. It had everything to do with some raw emotional response that they would then later explain to themselves, rationalize, justify. So since he did those experiments initially, 30 years of research by psychologists, neuroscientists, have been trying to test this hypothesis through brain measurements, psychological tests, and et cetera. And then the question is, is this is true in split brain people where the two sides don't communicate, but what about normal people? Now, I'm not going to bore you with all the research, but I will say the research suggests he's on to something. There's reason to believe that most of our behaviors are driven by a subconscious desire and then later explained or rationalized by our minds. So this is my, my favorite summary quote here. A psychologist, Robert Zagjong, says, For most decisions, it is extremely difficult to demonstrate that there has been any prior cognitive process whatsoever. And he's not just talking about teenagers here. Do you appreciate what he just said here? It's extremely difficult to, to suggest that anyone actually thought about anything before they decided it. That our thinking process usually follows our deciding process. So let's ponder this for a minute. This, this is not just some psychological curiosity here. This research suggests, and let me, let me word this for you. Our choices preferences and actions are by and large directed by subconscious desires. You might have heard it said this way before, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. This research suggests that often we do not understand why we really choose something, or the Apostle Paul put it on, I do not know what I do, but the very, why I do what I do, but the very thing I hate, I do. This research suggests that hardwired into our brains is propensity for self-rationalization, for living some kind of fiction, for self-deception. Or an ancient prophet once put it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Yeah. So we're, we're in a series called The Most Important Thing About You. And this is the, the last part of our series today. And for the past couple months, we've been talking about the priority of what you think, of your thinking, that we are renewed, that, that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Minds, yes, we talked about this again and again, week after week, and that we need to set our thinking on Jesus Christ. And we use this phrase over and over again, what you think about is what you love, and what you love is what you do, and what you do over and over again is who you are becoming. And that, my friends, is absolutely true, absolutely right, absolutely good. But as this series comes to a conclusion here, I thought it might be uh, worth taking a moment to pull back and just slap a warning label on everything we've just said. 
And it's simply this. You and I are liable to terrible self-deception. Let's imagine what this might look like for a minute. Um, Can you imagine, just try and picture this, someone who is utterly convinced that everything they do is for Jesus Christ, that they're doing his will while spreading fear, hatred, and greed. Can you imagine that? I can. I, 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 can, I, I can imagine that. How about this? Is it possible for someone to think, I'm a great Christian. I'm a good moral person. And then at the end of the time, have Jesus say, I never knew you. Is it possible to be utterly convinced that you're doing the will of God while denying what God's word explicitly teaches? Yeah. You see, hardwired into our fallen, broken souls is the potential for great, horrifying self deception. And the thing that's so humbling about this is to recognize the the potential, even recognize the potential of such great, horrifying self-deception is to admit I might have a problem. And if I'm not careful, I could love the wrong things, choose the wrong things, do the wrong things, and then after I've done all that, tell myself that I'm good, that I chose the right things, that I love the right things, that I'm a good person. Today, I want to close down this series with the question, how do we protect our minds, our thinking at the beginning of that? How do we protect our minds from self-deceit? How do we make sure that we are not lying to ourselves? Our text for today is John chapter 8, John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Let me set the context here. Jesus is at the temple. He, um, this is at the end of the the Feast of Tabernacles, and they've set up these giant menorahs, giant, and these flames, So menorah is a seven-pillared candle. Remember those? And so they, they, all this, and they would have this huge celebration. And at that festival, Jesus just gave his, I'm the light of the world speech. You know, it's a good one, right? People liked it. It says in verse 30 of this, just before this, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Like, it's, it's a good one. Jesus has fans. Like, he's, he's blowing up on Instagram right now. Like, hashtag light of the world is trending, okay? This is a good moment. This is a good moment. And this is where, if Jesus was a pastor today, we'd be like, this is it. This is it. You send out your best-selling book, your light of the world campaign. You build a mega church with one of those she-she coffee bars. Like, there's kids' ministries that's like a recreation of, of, of Noah's Ark. Like, this is it! But for some reason, Jesus just has something else planned. So let's look at verse 31 there. Jesus is going to turn to these people and says, to the Jews who had believed in him. If you've got your Bible open, underline that. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, and we've got to stop right here before we even see what he said. Who are these people? They came to the temple. These are good, moral people. They, they, they gave up lots of time and money to come worship God at the Feast of Tabernacles. These are good, God-fearing Jews who follow the rules and they're religious and they do the right things and they just believed his stories. 
They liked it. Like at the end of the service, all who would like to come forward, come forward now. And they're bawling out their eyes. I want to follow Jesus. Like this is it. This is what you want. To these people, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that, then you know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's like one of those, I want to immediately put it on one of those really cool Instagram pictures that we sit out on Facebook. Like, this is inspirational. When, when I went to um, university, one of the walls at our secular university, this giant building, had that on the side of it. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Like this is inspirational. But for some reason... The Jews who had believed, they didn't think this was so inspirational. For some reason, when they heard Jesus say, then you will know the truth, they heard, you don't know the truth. And then you will be set free, they heard, you're enslaved. And so Jesus just preached this great sermon, has this great crowd of people who believe his message. And then they look at each other and say, did he just say that we're slaves to lies? Verse 33, they answered him, um, excuse me, I, Jesus, we really like the light of the world thing, but you got one thing messed up here. Um, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Like, I've got a question here. Jesus, have you, have you been hanging out with like fishermen and prostitutes too long? You've forgotten something. You don't know who we are. We're the children of Abraham, the children of the promise, the children of faith. We are the people, we are the light of the world. That's why we liked your message so much, because we're great, we're it. Jesus, though, um, he's going to push this a little. Verse 34. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Like, um, you might not physically be slaves right now, but you're slaves. Verse 37, he goes on like this. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. Like, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, that you have the right ethnic lineage. But, you know, the the clue that there's something wrong with your relationship with God is that you want to kill Jesus. (laughs) If you want to kill Jesus, I'm just telling you, friends, that's a bad sign. Not good. It's worth noting that up to this point in the conversation, no one's actually said that they wanted to kill Jesus. He's digging into their motives. But he just pops that right out there. And and by the end of the conversation, they do want to kill Jesus. If you look down in verse 59, but I digress. Verse 38. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. You're right. Click, click. <laughs> well, it's official. It is now possessed. Are we good? Talk to me. My laser's working. I can point lasers at those guys. Oh, look at that! Look at that! Look at that! All right. So, sorry. Where were we? All right. So the conversation here. You know, Jesus says, "I'm listening to my father, and you're listening to your father." We're like. Our father's Abraham. And then they go to the next one. It says, if you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do as Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me. 
I'm pretty sure Abraham didn't try and kill me. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. Now, right here, we have to pause the conversation here because this, this sounds weird, right? This is not a conversation about ethnicity. There's no question. Of course, Jews are ethnically derived from Abraham. Great. This is not that question. This is a question about fatherhood. Ancient Near Eastern language. The father is, is, well, where do you get your looks? How do you learn your trade? How do you learn to eat like that and sleep like that and live like that and build a house like that? How do you get your name? How do you learn to walk like that, dress like that? The father, in ancient Near Eastern terms, is the source of who you are and all that you do. And these people are convinced that God is their father. Now listen to this. These people are good people who show up to the temple to worship God. And they sincerely believe that because they worship at the temple, follow all the rules, do good things, like the light of the world talk, God is the source of all they are and all they do. But Jesus is going to beg to differ. They say, we are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus says, if God were your father, you'd love me. I came from God and now I'm here. And, have, and I have not come on my own, but he sent me. I might have to have you guys click for me. It's freezing again. There we go. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And that, there it is. I mean, once you get to the point in conversation where you have to call someone a child of the devil, spawn of Satan, like, you know, there's just no, there's no turning back from that one. Like, you can't be like, ah, oh, just joking. No, it's out there. It's out there. And, and Jesus just said, you're, you're, yeah, your father's the devil. That's who you look like. That's the source of all that you do and all that you are. Yee. Verse 47, let's go to the next thing. He, Jesus is going to sum all this up at the end here. He says, Ooh. He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong with God. Be encouraged. Go in peace. <laughs> so let's, let's, uh, let's review this real quick. What, what did we just see here? Jesus comes to all those who had believed who liked his light of the world talk, who showed up to the temple to worship, who were ardent worshipers of God. And he says to them, you think, in your minds, you think that you're living out your faith just like Abraham. You think that God is the source of all that you are and all that you do. You, you sincerely believe that, but you are sincerely wrong. The reality is that your lives are fundamentally opposed to God. So let's, let's take this out of the Bible context. Jesus just said you can be a fan of Jesus. You can go to church. You can listen to Caleb and get one of those fish tattoos on your ankle. And be a child of the devil. You can be moral and follow all the right rules. And be considered a very good religious person and belong to hell. We have a huge liability that we can deceive ourselves 
Isn't that sobering? Like we can, I can tell myself I'm a good person. I'm living for God. I can sing, you are my all in all. Never miss a church service and have a heart that is enslaved to evil, dominated by evil, serving Satan's purposes. That's what just got said. This is going to beg all kinds of questions. The, the first, of course, is as, how could a spawn of Satan end up looking like a good moral person? Like, that's a serious question. I don't mean to joke. How could someone that Jesus says you belong to the devil, how could, how could that person end up being at the temple and worshiping and thinking in their minds, I am a true believer? How is it possible that we could be so deceived? Some people, or clearly at that time, were so deceived that they believed they were the children of Abraham. They believed that they were like Abraham, that they were the children of God, when in fact they were the complete opposite. And so this gets to our scary guy picture, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a dear friend of mine. If you can be friends with an old dead guy, he's my friend. And he's a lot nicer than he looks, actually. Sometimes. Actually, sometimes he's not. Not a smiling man, but Jonathan Edwards, uh, 1700s, um, one of the great, great pastors, arguably one of the greatest in American history. And part of the thing, one of the things I love about him is that he got fired. <laughs> he did. He got voted off the island late in his life uh, as a pastor. He, uh, he, he, some boys were looking at girly magazines and just imagine what does a 1700 girly magazine look like? I don't know. But, and he calls them all out by name in the middle of his church service. So I thought I'd do that just to follow his lead. Young men, I'd like to tell everyone who's been looking at those things. And that's what he did. It got, it got canned. And so the bad news is, is they just fired one of the greatest pastors in the history of the American church. But the good news of that is that he gets sent off to the frontier with like these like a missionary to the Indians, but there's not a lot of people and there's a lot of, that like, you just not a lot of things to do out there. So he goes out there and for those years of his life, he spends 12, 15 hours a day thinking deep thoughts. <laughs> not many people are made for that. This guy is. And from that time period, we get some of his best, like most treasured writings that have served the church for years. One of them is, is, is a work called On the Nature of True Virtue. And so in that book, he's going to ask this very question. How is it that we could be so self-deceived? How is it that someone could look righteous, look moral, look good, look like a lover of God, and in fact be a child of the devil? Specifically, he starts out with the question, what would people who do not know God, why would they act moral? Specifically, and he's talking about people who their heart's never been changed. They don't have the Spirit of God in them. God's never done a good work in them. They've never tasted the grace of God. Why would they be moral? And he comes up with his basic answer is there is such thing as common virtue. It's common because it doesn't require a supernatural work of God in your life. You don't need a new regenerate heart. You don't need to be born again. Like anyone, it's common. Anyone in the universe could have this type of virtue. And he gives us an example. He says, honesty. Why would someone who doesn't know God, doesn't know that there's a penalty of sin, doesn't know any of that, why would they possibly be honest? And he'd say, well, here's, here's just a few motivations off the top of his head. Fear. Like, what if I get caught lying? I could get punished. People won't trust me. It'd be bad. Pride. 
You don't want to be like all those bad people who lie, do you? Like, you're better than that. You're better than those people. You're not like that type of person. Selfish ambition. Honest people get further in life. They're more successful. Now, this might sound bad when you talk about fear, pride, selfish ambition, but but Edwards is going to note here that don't give up common virtue too quickly. It serves a purpose in society. It restrains evil. And this is why, parents, this is why, if you, if you know William Bennett's The Book of Virtue, this is why you break those out and read them to your kids. Dear Johnny, let me read you this story about someone who lied and got eaten by a witch. Right? This is, let me tell you about someone who was vain and got swallowed by a camel. I don't know. You know, so these terrible stories so that our kids are like, you don't want to be eaten by a witch, do you? No, I'll never lie again, right? So fear, pride, selfish ambition, it serves all those. This is um, the beauty of capitalism. Right? Capitalism is awesome. It clothes and feeds the world and gives us new gadgets day after day after day after day. Like we have so much stuff. And you know, you know what that's all based on? Greed. Terrible, seething greed. Could you imagine, just imagine for a moment, if everyone in America suddenly gave up greed and was perfectly content with what they had? It'd be terrible. The global economy as we know it would collapse. Right? Right? Millions of jobs would go away like that. Why? Because they're based upon greed. It's a system built on greed. Now, as terrible as greed or selfish ambition, pride, fear are, as terrible as that might sound, uh, try and imagine a world with no common virtue. So some friends of ours just moved to Haiti and their house with their little babies. They had to get a giant wall with glass broken around it. Two dogs, giant dogs, one for the yard, one for the house. So if any intruders come, those dogs will help protect them. One of the dogs has already been killed by a would-be robber. They serve at an orphanage that has to have armed guards. You know why? Because the parents, like the, the fathers, the rogue fathers of these orphans will come in to the orphanage and steal all the food from orphans. Now, what kind of world is it where, you ha- where people kill dogs and steal food from orphans? It's a world without common virtue. It's a world without fear, pride, self. There is no reason to be virtuous there. And it's a terrible world. So, common virtue serves some purposes in restraining evil, but it's not all good. There's a couple of problems with common virtue, and I think you can probably see some of these. The first problem is this. It works. Like, imagine, if it really, really works, it can produce someone who is fearful, prideful, selfish, and honest as could be. And it's not just honesty, though. Like, you can apply this to almost across the board. Why do men not cheat on their spouses more? Fear. Why do parents not beat their kids in public more? Why do people not steal from their businesses? Um, Why don't you punch your neighbor in the throat when he pushes his leaves onto your lawn and you want to? Fear, pride, selfish ambition, greed. These things, common virtue works. It makes us 
behave nicely. In fact, if you, if you really follow this through, if you read all those books on, you know, the book of common virtue and you, you read all these books and you, you spend your time in this, it could really, really work. In fact, you look, people would look at you and be like, you are the best, most upstanding person I know. You're such a good person. In fact, you could even say to yourself, you know what? They're right. I never cheat on my spouse. I never lie. I go to church. Like, God must love me. I must be doing the exact will of God the whole time. You're feeding your fear, your pride, your selfish ambition. And then you come here and we see you at church and we're like, man, outwardly, this person seems so nice. They must be a good Christian. So let's send them down to little Johnny and Susie's classroom. And we're going to have a teach Bible story. So you go down there and you're like, okay, kids, today we're going to open up to Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied. And God killed them dead. You don't want to die, do you? Then you better not lie. And they're like, oh. We don't teach that, by the way. Hmm? Uh-uh. We teach the gospel. And then you're like, okay, kids, let's review. Why shouldn't you lie? Fear, pride, and selfish ambition. That's right. Like, it's terrible. So that's, that's the problem, right? Is that common virtue, it often works. But the second problem with common virtue is that sometimes it doesn't work. So what happens when you get placed in a position where telling the truth is more frightening than lying? What happens when you get placed in a position where telling the truth it's humiliating. Who made the toilet overflow? <laughs> what happens when telling the truth means personal loss? If the reason you tell the truth is fear, pride, and selfish ambition, anytime those trump telling the truth, you lie. You lie. If the motivation for being honest is fear, pride, selfish ambition, you will only tell the truth when it serves those ends because that's what you're really about. That's what really defines you. That's what really guides your decisions. And when it breaks down, it can be shocking because some people live in this world of common virtue so long that they actually believe their own lies. They don't realize that it's fear, pride, selfish ambition that they're serving, they think they're an honest person because they don't lie. Until one day they get placed in a position where fear, pride, or selfish ambition becomes bigger than telling the truth, and they lie, and it's like, what just happened? That's not like me. I'm an honest person. I don't know what happened. But Jonathan Edwards, and more to the point, Jesus, is going to say, you are not an honest person. You're a fearful, prideful, selfish person who uses honesty for your real desires and they are evil desires. Your honesty is only as strong as your fear of humiliation, your pride, and your selfishness. And these cannot support the weight of true virtue, true heart change. This, thank you, Jonathan is what John 8 is about. We find people who are at the temple who claim to believe in Jesus, who sincerely believe that they are God's people doing God's will, and who are utterly controlled by evil. 
while outwardly they're doing all the right things. They are self-deceived in church if we are not careful. We could be too. Church, hardwired into our fallen, broken souls is the potential for great self-deception. We have to be so careful in cultivating true virtue in ourselves, in our children, and in our community. If you follow Christ, it is not enough to do the right things. You have to do it the right way for the right motives. This is something I say in the staff all the time. It's not enough to make the right decision. It's not enough to do the right thing. You've got to do it for the right reasons. Like, that's the whole point. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That's the whole point. Jesus does not want us to become a well-behaved people. He wants us to become a new people. He wants to take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. He wants to write the law on our hearts. So John chapter 8, Jesus is going to give us three ways to help protect us against self-deceit, against this question. How do we make sure that we aren't lying to ourselves? In John chapter 3, there's, or John chapter 8, there's three different ways Jesus is going to point out to these people that things that they should be doing to address this problem. And I'll I'll bust through these fairly quickly. The first one is know the truth. He says, if you know my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, Now, we've talked about this before. There's two ways of knowing something. So if some kids come from Cambodia and they've never had a hot fudge sundae before, they're like, what is that? Like you could be like, well, first uh, it's milk that's frozen and mixed with cream and sugar and then scooped out, and then you take a semi-warm, solid form of chocolate, and you put it on top. And you could explain it all in some manuscript for them, or you could take Chunky Monkey, Ben and Jerry's. You know what I'm talking about? Like 50 grams of saturated fat per scoop, and you just blop that guy out. You get Godiva chocolate and turn it into fudge, and you get extra whipped cream with cherry on top, and you say, try this. Like, right? Two ways of knowing what a hot frog Sunday is. One is a cognitive way about learning facts, and the other one is you try this. Try this. Guess which one is Jesus talking about here? He's saying, if you hold to my teachings, you're my disciples, then you'll know, then you'll know. Then you'll, you'll try this. Then you'll know. Um, try to forgive those who sin against you. Then, then you'll know. If you love God with all you have and all you are, then you'll know. If you love your enemies, if you put God's kingdom before your personal happiness, then you'll know. So when we talk about knowing the truth, this is not some cognitive list of I know all the rules Jesus said. This is saying live the truth, then you'll know it. Of course, couldn't we say, though, that it's possible, possible, that this could just become another list of activities and you could deceive yourself. Like you do the right thing, but you do it for the wrong motives. And let me just say, probably not. If you take out the Sermon on the Mount and trying to live that, I think you will find it really, really difficult to do that in a superficial way. Because Jesus rules what he commands, it always gets to the heart. Like, how do you love your enemy in a superficial way? It's just really hard to do. But, but there's a few qualifiers to protect us. Just in case, 
Some of us are so sick and twisted that we could do that. He's going to add in some qualifiers. Know the truth, and the next thing he says is, do what Abraham did. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. Now, what, what did Abraham do? He gave up everything. The land he knew, his family, everything, and went to the land that God would show him. He gave up everything, but it wasn't just, that wasn't the only thing he did. What else did he do? After he did that, after he followed God, after he said, I'll give up everything for you, what did God say? Oh, and there's one more thing I want. I want you to take your son, your only son. I want you to take him up to the top of Mount Moriah, and I want you to kill him. After you've given up everything, even your family, even your child, for God, you have no selfish reason to follow God anymore unless God's what you really want. The funny thing about sacrifice It's purifying. It's revealing. When you sacrifice deeply, suddenly all your motives, they just come right out. You know, who's worried about impressing someone when you lose your son? Who's worried about losing their job or getting sick or even dying when God asks for everything? And if you want to know your own heart, you do what Abraham did. You sacrifice. I don't know about you, but at this point, I'm like, I'm okay being (laughs) self-deceived. I'll take some of that. I don't want to know too much about my heart. That sounds pretty terrible. So there's one more qualifier we have to add in here. It's not just know the truth by living out what Jesus said, and it's not just doing what Abraham did, which is utter sacrifice. But it's love, Jesus. Jesus said, if you, uh, if God were your father, you would love me. How do you avoid being self-deceived? How do we find true virtue? And the answer is love, Jesus. So obedience and sacrifice, they can get us far, but love is what drives True virtue. Love is what makes sacrifice worth it. Love's what cuts through the lies. Love's what transforms us from the inside out. Love is the very heart of God. So 1 John 4, 8, God is love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Romans 8, 5, 8, God, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 18, perfect love drives out fear. Love transforms, love saves, love renews, love takes what's bitter and makes it sweet. Love ultimately resurrects and recreates and calls us to a sure hope. So what do you do? Know the truth. Is there something Jesus is clearly commanding you to know about that you know the facts about, but you've never tried for yourself? Is there an enemy that you need to love Is there a person you need to forgive? Because I tell you, if you can't follow those, those are the things that breed self-deceit. 
Do what Abraham did. Is God calling you to sacrifice something? Are you working a job that you shouldn't be working? Are you in a relationship you shouldn't be in? Is God pulling your heart somewhere and you're just saying no? Love Jesus. Do you love him? Do you cherish Jesus? Do, do, you, do you take time to enjoy him? Do you know what's so wonderful about him? Do you relish in him? Do you like talking about him and thinking about him? Do you love him? So, I'm going to close today. It's an ancient prayer. And this is my prayer for all of us. It's from Psalm 39. It goes like this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Father, I, I pray just humbly, Lord, knowing that we are so susceptible to self-deceit, Lord. If you don't work in our hearts, if you don't give us a new heart, Lord, we, we could so easily do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, and then justify it in our own minds. God, I pray that that will not be true of us as a people. I pray that even right now, God, you'd be cutting through, breaking through the hard places in our hearts where we believe our own lies. God, I pray that we would be a people who truly do look to you as our Father, that you are the source of who we are and all that we do to your glory and our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.